Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week is a legend in the gambling world. He's a well-known bookmaker, better, and poker player. He ran option sports for years and was known for having one of the sharpest baseball lines in the industry. I'm proud to call him my good friend. Please welcome Dickie Carson. Dickie, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Spanky. How are you? I'm okay, my friend. How about you? I'm hanging in, hanging in. Great, Dickie. So I always like to start off with, how was life growing up? Life growing up. I grew up uh, in El Paso, Texas. I moved there when I was about five or six years old from uh, Tyler, Texas, where I was born in Tyler. I uh, lived with my mother. My mother and father were separated, and then they got a divorce. I lived on a street called Hastings Street. Um, I used to go to a grade school that was about two blocks from my house. It was name of it was Caldwell. I grew up, my best friend was named Louie Camilli, who turned out to be a Major League Baseball player for the Cleveland Indians. I played mostly baseball when I was little. I did play other sports, uh, a little bit of football, a little bit of basketball, not much. I was a little small for that. I grew up a normal life. I, I didn't have any money. I didn't have, my mother worked all day long downtown. Uh, like I said, Louie was my best friend. Uh, he lived about a block from me. I used to run over to his house. and His mother was an Italian cook. She was a mother of five boys. She used to fix me food all the time. I hung out at his house most of the time. I played on a Little League baseball team uh, with him. He was a star player. He was the best player in the city. I was just a, a hanger-on. I, I bunted all the time and ran the first base fast and and Louie would knock me in. But the name of the team was Ramsey Steele. We won the city championship in 1958. I bunted my way on first base in the bottom of the sixth inning, and Louie hit a double and knocked me in, and we won the game. I think it was either one to nothing or two to one. We beat wow. a team named Bowie Laundry. That was in August of 1958. My childhood was um, probably pretty close to all normal after I – after that year, I turned 13 or 12. All the boys started growing. Uh, I didn't grow. And thus, when I got into 7th uh, and 8th and ninth grades, I really couldn't make the team. Now, in those days, it's not like now. In those days, you had to make the team. They didn't have this these sports nowadays where they think that every kid ought to play. Uh so I kind of fell out of playing sports, wasn't big enough, wasn't strong enough, couldn't make the team, really. And I, uh, you know, I got into a little mischief when I was a teenager, like all teenagers. And uh, I started, uh, actually, I, I started uh, playing a little poker, not much. We played Penny Annie when I was about 14. Uh, sometimes we played under the uh, football stadium. But my mother remarried and uh, when I was about 14 or 15, and uh, I couldn't get along with my stepfather. And now that I look back on it, of course, it was my fault. I, was, I had been with my mother 
my father used to visit every three months and take me fishing. But I spent most of the time with my mother, and I was jealous, I guess. And I, I couldn't get along with him, so I got into a little mischief. And my dad came to pick me up and took me to Dallas, Texas. I believe I was 14 or close to 15. And I moved to Dallas. Uh, I lived with my father and my aunt, his sister. And that's where I really got into gambling, uh, really got into it. Uh, I joined a club called the Capitan Bowling Alley. I became a pool player. I used to rack balls, and I used to set pins before they had these pin setters there. And I started playing pool. And all I did was play pool all day after school, all day Saturday and Sunday. And also, I played poker. They had a poker game in the back of the bowling alley. I didn't know at the time I was getting cheated, but it didn't make any difference. I think it was quarter ante or something like that. All the money that I got, I played poker with uh, and pool, but I was good at pool. I kept getting better and better and better and better, and I practiced all the time. And I remember when Willie Moscone came to give an exhibition. That might have been 1962 or three. He was working for Brunswick. That was my ambition, to be the greatest pool player in the world. But, of course, I've never had any money. It was a terrible life, and I was broke all the time and had to hustle all over the country, which I did. I gave that up in 1971. But I started really gambling on poker there. And when I was about 16 or 17, I uh, used to win all the money playing poker at high school. I mean, I, I, I used to win all the money. And I wound up finding a club called the Redmond's Club. And, of course, I went down there and played with the likes of Bob Hooks and James Eldridge and Johnny Wheeler and Gilbert Hess and Doc Nichols and Bobby Chapman and, and uh, uh, Tippy Toe Joe and all a bunch of professional players. And, of course, every time I went down there, I lost whatever money I had. It could have been 100, 200, 300, whatever money that I had hustled up, you know, playing pool or taking bets on the side from – some of the kids at high school, I used to do that. And so that's actually, a, that's first, a lot of that's a lot of stuff, Dickie. Man, I hope, let me digest all this. So, man, you, you know, you, you, the gambling really started when you moved in with your dad in Dallas, and yeah. and, and pool and poker were were, were you know your, your entry points into the world of gambling. Um, were other kids your age doing the same thing, or were you one of the younger guys in a pool hall? I was the youngest kid in the pool. In fact, I wasn't even supposed to be in there, I don't think. It was a membership club that my Aunt Mary got me into. You paid so much a month to be a member. It was a bowling alley, and they had pool hall, pool tables. And I became friendly with the guy that ran the bowling alley, and he had a poker game in the back. It was that sort of thing. It was kind of a shady area, whether I should have been in there or not. But I was there all the time. My first job... I worked for a bookie after school. His name was Ben Summers. Uh, that was my first job, actually. I worked for him for three hours after school. He was an illegal bookmaker. We always worried about the door coming down and used to have the rice paper. And, and that's how I really got started in the bookmaking business. Uh, I used to book at high school a little bit, high school football. Uh, um, it's a big thing in Texas, but that's how I really got started working for Ben Summers at uh, my senior year of high school. In fact, I had to ditch my last class every day. My 
my uh, sweet high school sweetheart Matilda would remember I had to ditch my last class. It was general science every day after school to go to work for the bookie. Boy, she would get mad at me. She would say, where in the heck are you going? I said, I'm going to make 40 bucks. I said, I'm I'm, and I used to work for that bookie, but that's how I really got started in the bookmaking business. And sure enough, they busted the door down one time. But I, I you know, from there on, I mean, it, it, my life has been gambling. Uh, yes, mostly bookmaking and betting sports, poker, those would be the number one and two. I quit playing pool in 1971 because, you know, it was a tough life. But I went on and I gambled while I was playing pool. I played poker also. I was not a winning player. I couldn't beat those guys down there at the Redmond's Club. They taught me how to play. So, man, th this is just so cool. I'm just trying to imagine it right now. You know, a young Dickie Carson in that pool hall kind of taking his lumps, learning the insides and outs of the gambling trade and, and learning from some of these guys that, in the Texas uh, poker scene, which was, you know, one of the central uh, points in the whole nation when it came to poker. You know, the best of the best played in Texas. Am I, am I wrong to say that? Or No, I mean, I played with the best players in the world. Some of the best players, Buck Buchanan, Bob Hooks, all of them. I mean, James Eldridge, uh, they all – I didn't win. Don't misunderstand me. I never had any money. Sometimes I would deal the game when I was flat broke. Um, but I was always the youngest around. I wasn't even old enough to get into place. But it was the Redmond's Club. The address was 308 and a half South Irby. Uh, illegal poker room. They called it the Redmond's. You know, that's how they got by. They had a charter. But, yes, I played with the best. And I, and I started booking with a professional bookmaker. Like I said, Ben Summers, and of course I, I knew them all around there. Bobby Chapman. I mean, I, I hung around. Now most of the people I hung around with were older than me. My girlfriend, my sweetheart Matilda, she used to say, "God Almighty," you know. I never went to the senior prom. I was always busy gambling or something, and uh, but that was my life, Spinky. Unbelievable. So, so. All right, so so the doors come down. Does that you know? Does that change you? Oh man, look, you know what happens back then when you get pinched. Um, you know, do you even do you, do you spend the night in jail? Do you spend a minute, an hour in jail? Well, what kind of penalties is it? Just a simple well, fine, or you were just an employee? So how how big could it have been? Wasn't bad at all. I mean, when they when they raided Ben Summers, uh, nothing happened. I got suspended from school being there the school uh, didn't even know what was going on they just saw in the paper where they rated a bookie I was there my dad had to take me down to the school and get me back in I mean nothing happened to me as far as the law goes now I was arrested several times after that yeah uh, later on when I got a little bit older and I started my own business Actually, we'll, we'll, I, we'll get into that but how about Ben Summers what happened to him well, he's dead. I mean, he died. No, no, no. no. I'm talking about what happened to Ben Summers uh, he after got, that He pitch. got arrested, and I don't remember what happened to him, but he got out of it. You know, in those days, Spanky, the vice squad, would bust the door down. They would get rice paper, a few bets. He got arrested, yes, because several years after that, Ben Summers came to me one time and said, would you handle my customers for me for a little while? I've got a lot of heat. And I used to you know, take care of his customers. Sometimes I'd go rent me an apartment and I'll tell you when it was when Muhammad Ali was fighting the Frazier, those 
big fights, the Thriller, Melilla, and all that. He just came to me and asked me, he said, you know, I've got a lot of heat. I can't be around it. Would you handle my customers for me? And I said, well, sure. And I used to handle his customers, and I'd go to a pay phone on Monday morning and call him with the figures. And uh, that's about it. I got busted doing that, too. And they came in, and uh, they wanted to know whose business this was. Of course, I never answered them. They put me in jail, and I got indicted, and then they I got it beat. I had a lawyer, and we beat it. You know, all they really had for evidence was, was uh, rice paper and bets on it. Um, but, you know, it was the vice squad in those days. It wasn't the government, and it wasn't, you know, the phone wasn't tapped. I can tell you a funny story. They they were following me around. They knew I must have been working for Ben Summers. He was a well-known bookie around there. And I used to go pick my daughter up every day at lunch, almost every day. Carolyn, the one that I asked you, maybe she could listen in uh, and take her to the park for yogurt and go to the park and feed the ducks. And they were following me. They'd been following me around for two or three weeks. And they had it on camera. And I would pick my daughter up on my break and I would, you know, take her to feed the ducks and they had it on film. So my lawyer, Lester May was his name. I don't remember where it was the preliminary hearing and sometime during the, the uh, process of my indictment, he told the judge, he said, now here's what Mr. Carson does. Y'all have broken in, his, uh, broken in his apartment, took his money, charged him with illegal bookmaking. Here's what he does. He, and he showed the film they had. It was part of the evidence. In other words, I guess to make a long story short, I was a gambler. I mean, that's just what I did. Whether it be taking bets, making bets. Uh, my first big bet was in 1969 that I made on my own. I bet all my money on the stinking Baltimore Orioles to beat the Mets in the World Series. They had four 20-game winners. I think it's Palmer, Cuellar, McNally, and Dobson. But in the meantime, they didn't win a game, or if they did win, they win one. Mets beat a miracle Mets. But that's that was my life. Wow. So when, when, when the jury or, or when the judge saw that uh, that video of you just picking up your daughter, you, all you're doing is feeding ducks, what harm could this guy do? Well, they knew what I was doing. I mean, it, it was just part of the investigation. They, they wanted to see if I was doing anything else, you know, probably, gotcha. if I was involved in anything else. That's just one story. I, I got arrested a few times. I was selling parlay cards once, and I was broke, and I was t selling parlay cards on Lemon Avenue, and uh, they rest, they 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 ran on on me. You know, they took my cards, and they said this is illegal. And I remember my old friend Bobby Chapman had told me. He said, "You ain't gonna last two weeks doing that." I lasted one, but. <laughs> So that's funny. Well, they, that was just, you know, in those days, gambling was, you know, they, they looked down on you a little bit. They don't even arrest anybody anymore like that. I mean, uh, those yeah. days are all over. So, so Dickie, so, you know, so, so now you're really starting to, to, to learn the business and you're engulfed in it. Um, when do you now wind up, you know, opening up your own shop and when do you start booking now for yourself? What, you know, let's, you know, early to mid seventies, I probably started on my own right after I worked for Ben Summers. And, uh, you know, I don't remember how long I worked for him that time. I handled his customers for a while. It could have been a couple of months, three months. And then 
he took them back and said, thank you. And I, I don't remember. I, I got some money out of it, but I can't remember how much. I probably started it right then on my own, about 1972. I, I started booking and I, and he gave me a few customers. He gave me a couple of guys and then I hustled around and by word of mouth. And in those days, Spanky, if you made a bet, you had to make it with an illegal bookmaker. You know, there were no legal places to bet. Mm -hmm. And I, I accumulated a pretty good little business, you know, mostly hundred dollars a game, two, $300 a game. Uh, I don't know how many customers I had. I had, I rented an apartment. Actually, a friend of mine rented it for me in his name over on the other side of Dallas. And I got raided May 23rd, 1973, my mother's birthday. Um, I had built up a pretty good little business, you know, for them, you know. And they busted in on me, which they all knew me, the Vice Squad. They knew me from when I was a teenager and that I had been around Dallas. I'd, I'd been arrested several times playing poker, you know, just – you know, they find you $50 and they send you home. But I got arrested there. They took all my money that I had, which was about $10,000. It was all the money I had in the world. And I was married to Matilda. And we had uh, three, two children, uh, Carolyn and Derek. Courtney was coming soon. I was completely flat broke. Uh, after that, I got indicted. I had to get some money from Ben to help me out at the time. I think he was living then. He died shortly after that. And I borrowed money from Bobby Chapman and uh, a few guys around here, a guy named Johnny Ross. And make a long story short, <clears throat> that I beat that case. They, they threw it out. All they had was rice paper, but they kept my money. And uh, they threw it out and they kept my money. And I started contemplating my life and I told Matilda I said uh, you know I think we ought to move to Las Vegas I said I'm tired of this you know I, I had been arrested several times uh, all for gambling bookmaking and poker playing running crap games too I, I used to have a crap game but anyway <laughs> I decided to move my family to Las Vegas so after I beat the case I packed up the kids uh, I think Courtney was born. She was born in 74. We went out there right about that time. And we headed out to Las Vegas. We stopped in my mother's house at El Paso. Uh, we, we headed to Vegas in, in, in our, in, in a, and we had a, a camper, like a U-Haul a, a trailer full of whatever I owned, which wasn't much. And we broke down in Deming, New Mexico. I had to get $100 from my father. He, may, he sent it to me, Western Union, to get my car out of Hawk and Deming. They robbed us. They fixed the car. We got to Las Vegas. I had $15. I had rented a townhouse behind the Venetian restaurant. I dropped the kids and Matilda off at the townhouse, and I went downtown to play poker. Bob Hooks was going to stake me. Bob Hooks was my real good friend who actually taught me most all of what I know about poker. And... I started playing Texas Hold'em down there and no limit. And I, I won a lot of money, not a lot of money, but a lot of money then. And I went from there. Now, that's where I met uh, Bill Boyd. And uh, of course I had already known the Binions. Uh, I knew Benny Binion real well. And I, I got to be friendly with Jack. 
And I went from there, Spanky. And that's how I wound up in Las Vegas. I decided that my family was uh, most important and that I couldn't hang around Texas anymore. So, Dickie, that's just, you know, I noticed that you know these dates, like to the exact date. Um, you, you really got an unbelievable memory. Um, I do and, have a good memory. I still have my brain. I oh, had yeah. a little problem with my body, but I have my brain. It's unbelievable how you remember the exact details on where you broke down, what date this happened and that happened. And this is just, you know, it, it's so, so unbelievable. Like, I love it. Um, so, okay. So you go to Las Vegas and, um, and, you know, back in the mid seventies, Las Vegas, you know, it, it's, 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 uh, a, a town of gamblers that are, you know, mob run obviously. And, and what was the atmosphere like? Describe it to me. The atmosphere. I played mostly at the golden nugget and the horseshoe when, I played legal poker, and uh, after a little bit, I started trying to rake up some of my old customers from Texas. I started going to a payphone and, you know, booking from a payphone uh, with what little money I had accumulated. Bob Hooks was in with me. And then I just went from there, and then I got a job with an old friend of mine named Bobby McMahon, and Sam Petrillo was his name. Uh, they gave me a little job handling their football customers uh, for a little bit. So between the poker and the, and the bookmaking, I made a living and supported my family. And, and then I guess about 1977 or eight, I really took off. I mean, I went on my own. I bought a home out on Oki, on Oki street. And I guess I just went from there and, uh, so that, that, that's such a that's an American dream. You get to Vegas with fifteen dollars in your pocket. Yeah, I did. And 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 by seven and, and in five years' time, you know, you, you're you're you know you blew up. You, you came so big. Um, what I was talking about before was not just the poker scene, but also the sports book scene, where there you know most of the sports betting was taking place outside of the legal joints. There was more underground bookmakers than than legal bookmakers. Correct. They didn't have sports books then. The, the Hollywood sports book mm -hmm. was out on the strip. The, I mean, it was downtown. The Churchill Downs was out on the strip. The paddock. Um, they didn't have sports books in the casinos per se. Mm -hmm. The sports books were out of the casinos. They were legal, but they didn't have them in the casinos. Um, so if you wanted to make a bet in a sports book, you made it in the you know most of the Churchill Downs and the Hollywood, but the there were a lot of illegal bookmakers. And I became one of them. Um, there were a lot of bookmakers around around Vegas. They used to run around the poker rooms and hang around, you know. Uh, of course, Tony Splatro, he tried to get his little piece of it. But, yeah, there was there were no sports books in the casinos at that time. Gotcha. So, 79, you said 78, 79, you start becoming so big. How big is big? What kind of What kind of numbers are you booking? Well, I don't know how big, big is called. I, you know, I, I, I had accumulated a pretty good little business and, uh, I, I used to bet a bunch of bookies in Texas that weren't quite as sharp as, as, as I was. I had a lot of sharp customers, uh, Joe Snyder, E. Walker, uh, a lot of, a lot of old timers, a guy named Burt Brown, uh, there were, there were a lot of old timers and, and they bet me and I sometimes would scalp them and, you know, I, I probably was taking 5000 a game, 
1980, maybe 79 or 80, 5,000 a game, sometimes more. Um, I bet also, of course, uh, but I wouldn't say I was that big. I wasn't near the biggest. I probably became real big in 1982, three. My best year ever was 84 and five until that World Series. But I, I started taking big bets around 82 or three, you know, maybe 20,000 a game, 50,000 on some games. I, I would take a bet. I, you know, I was, I would take a bet. So back then now you're taking these, these are, you know, even by today's standards, these are numbers that you can never find. No bookmakers are even booking those kind of numbers. Your your booking these bets is how was the you know did you lay off how was the you know your risk uh, uh, profile what did you need to did, did were you happy taking these kind of numbers would you be okay going into a game with a decision um, that high or were you, since you were a better would you also try like you said scalp the game middle of the game or maybe hedge a little bit what was your strategy like? Well, you know I, I had good business. I had sharp guys. You know, if a guy came into me like E. Walker and bet me 10000 on a game, I might be able to get off that game at a better price than he laid me or took. You know, mm -hmm. I had sleepy timeouts. You know what I'm talking about, Spanky. You're in the business. Yeah. I had sleepy timeouts. Uh, so a lot of times I would get off his bet. Maybe I would go in with his side, you know, if, 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 I, if I felt like it was the right thing to do. And – I just kind of zigged and zagged and, and used my uh, street sense. And, uh, you know, I might have, I might have 60,000 bet on one side and I might've gone and bet 50 on the same side, but I may have a number or two going for me. And the only risk I had was not getting paid. So I earned a lot of money. I usually had the right side going for me. Uh, and the reason I had the right side going for me was not because I knew who the right side was, but was because the guys who called me knew who the right side was. Yeah, this is an art form that's lost in today's Dickie where guys don't understand how to utilize sharp customers to their advantage. They it's, don't. Uh, they don't, they don't even want them, period. They don't, not only do they not utilize them, they don't want them. Exactly. So, Dickie, you, you I mentioned... I have about 100 of them right now. Tell me about it. Dickie, you mentioned you also bet with bookmakers in Texas. How yeah. national did it get now? Did you book with guys in New York? How, how deep did you guys get? Because, you know, and then, and back then, you know, the East Coast scene was pretty big. Um, did you ever get into guys uh, on the East or on the East Coast? Or? Oh, yeah. I started doing business with the East Coast and it was big time. What year did you start betting with me, Spanky? Do you remember? Yeah, I started betting with you in 99. So I was way, way later. Oh, well, that was, that yeah, was that later. Was... No, I, I used to have a lot of business in the East Coast. Um, you know, there were, you know, I used to, you know, I used to, used to know them all. I mean, they bet me, I bet them. Um, I have a good friend of mine now. Uh, you know him, I think, Matthew. He's uh, Bob Jay's son. Anyway, I knew, I knew all these guys back in the day. Uh, a lot of them in New York. Yeah, I knew them all. I, and I bet with them and they bet with me. And it was kind of like a, you know, a circuit. That probably wasn't until 1983, right around 82 or 3. It might have started a little bit, 1979 or 80, but I, I really didn't get going well until 81, 2, and 3 in that area. Now, how was the settling back then? You know what I mean? 
How would you settle with a guy in New York when you're in Vegas? We used to get we used to get on the plane and take him the money. You could get on the plane with any. I, I got on the plane once with a million bucks. I mean, <laughs> you could get on the plane. We just got on the plane and went and paid him. That's I amazing. think we had a rule that whoever had the money coming would would go get it. Uh, I, I can't. You know, some some different. Some it was different, and we transferred money. You know, on Mondays we would transfer figures. You know. Uh, this guy owes me sixty thousand. Allow him fifty-eight. Would you transfer it, and we'll carry the two? Spanky, those days were different. Uh, communication was different. We didn't have cell phones. Uh, we went to pay phones to talk about business that was, you know, not supposed to be talking about. Uh, I, but we just took the money out. You know, a lot of a lot of those New York bookmakers, they'd come to Vegas. I mean, they'd come to Vegas and uh, and. Uh, you know, bring the money that they owed me or if I owed them, they'd come out there to pick it up and I'd meet them at some hotel and they'd have some fancy suite and I would, uh, you know, hand them their money. But it was different in those days. And then we we did use Federal Express, but most of the time we used Federal Express was with uh, regular customers, not bookmakers. You know, like if a customer had 4,500 coming that lived in Beaumont, Texas, you know, I'd go to Federal Express and send it to him or I'd have my runner go to Federal Express and send it to him. In those days, you could send money Federal Express. They, then they started robbing the packages. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, it's it's a different world nowadays. And, and, you know, you could get on the plane. Shit. I don't know how many times I used to fly from Dallas to Las Vegas. I'd just get on the plane, give them some phony name, jump on the plane and go. Nowadays, it's almost like going through an FBI check. I mean, it's <laughs> just, the, the whole world has been ruined by all this. Yeah, understood. So it's unbelievable how things are yeah, different now. So, okay, so you're riding high. You're at the top now, 84. Um, You mentioned earlier up until that World Series in 85. What happened then? Well, <laughs> nothing really happened. When I lost the World Series, I still had plenty of money. What did you lose? What did you bet on the World Series? I lost $2 million on it. St. Louis and Kansas City, 1985 World Series. Gary Austin lost a lot of money on it too. He made a big bet. We both bet on it. We ran it from a dollar fifty to over two to one. Had three game to one lead and we lost it. Don Dickinger robbed us in the sixth game. The, the famous call at first base that cost me a little over three million. But I wasn't broke. I had plenty of money. I just went on. Um, I just I just went on and uh, started doing the same thing I always did. And I really didn't have any money problems until the middle 90s i started i had some problems but you know i should have gone to costa rica or the dominican i had a chance to go down there frankie masterini wanted me to come down there i went down there to see him he wanted me to buy his business and move it down there but to be honest with you i wanted to stay home with my family i had built a beautiful home and had a wonderful basement in the bottom and my kids were all swimming and playing soccer and baseball, and I was a coach of the Little League team. I had a wonderful life, and I didn't want to leave it. I had everything right in front of me. So I didn't leave the country. I, I stayed, and, and actually the computer came along. Don Best came along. And uh, that might have been one of my downfalls. I lost all the sleepy timeouts. I either broke them or they quit. Um, and then I guess my biggest problem was I, I mismanaged my money, Spanky. I, you know, somebody told me one time at dinner, I don't remember who it was. We were out in Las Vegas eating dinner. And he said, well, you know, Dickie, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. 
you would have never gotten a hold of all that money if you didn't have all that gambling you, which he's right. You know, I used to play real high. Uh, and, you know, I got money booking high and playing high, and I lost it booking high and playing high. I regret it. I wish I hadn't done it. I'm sitting here right now wishing I had that money back, but I don't. But I did a lot of good with my money, and I supported my family with it and took care of my children. And, uh, of course, I have regrets, but, you know, what are you going to do? I still have my knowledge. So, Dickie, what happens then now in the mid-'90s when, when after the, now the Internet comes into play? Like you said, you lose all the soft outs or you break them. Yeah. Um, when do you wind up – you know, the business going down, when do you go offshore? Well, I, the business started falling down in 1997. Mm -hmm. And that's when I hawked my house. I borrowed a million dollars on it. Um, and then I went on tilt, Spanky. Uh, I played too high. I, I went overboard. I lost my money. I didn't go overseas until year 2000. Uh, February 2000, a good friend of mine in El Paso, uh, had been arrested, and uh, I went overseas and opened up a place with him. I was broke. I had lost my home. The bank had taken it, uh, and so I didn't go over there until 2000, February 2000. And this is where? Costa Rica? Costa Rica, yeah. I, I was I was running this uh, sports book over there. For, so another, this, for another guy. So this is when I was starting to play into around that 99 early 2000 um and i remember you your numbers were were unbelievable you would always have the smallest margins in baseball you would deal a six cent line on baseball which you know for the offshore you know i know that was common here and there but for the offshore world that was pretty novel and and it was uh it was it was a breath of fresh air you were always such a great out to have um how did you wind up making a comeback um during that time well i first got broke um, I first got broke. We were going to open up a sports book, a post-up place, but we were late. We were too late. Um, we advertised. In other words, we were a little bit late. And actually, we got broke. And I was really headed out of there. And uh, a friend of mine uh, from Bet Chris, Ron Sacco, he, he, he bailed me out. And uh, he, you know, helped me out and uh, took me over to his place and I moved my business over there and I went from there. Um, you know, the last 20 years of my life have been tough. I mean, I've never had any kind of the money that I, that I had. And of course my children were almost all grown. Um, and it, it's been a tough road, but I've done, you know, some good and some bad and some good and some bad. Uh, there'll never be the days like the old days, uh, you know, They'll never, they'll never be the 80s anymore or the 70s or the early 90s. I know those days are over, but I'm still here and I'm still kicking and I'm still fighting. God bless. I love it, Dickie. That, that, I can't, couldn't have said it better. So, all right. So, you know, so the last uh, several years then, you know, you're, you're just, you know, going up and down, nothing crazy. Now, we're, um, we're, when do you, want, do you wind up now? You're no longer booking – You've long since retired. Um, um, are you still? Did you still wind up playing poker and gambling? Because I know you're. I, I've seen you, uh, you. You know, tell me how what the last ten years have been like. Well, the last ten years, uh, 
I play poker whenever I have time, all the time. Uh, like I said, I was down in Costa Rica working at that place with those people. They helped me out an awful lot. You know, I, I, I was betting baseball. I was booking option sports and didn't have enough business. And they have such a big business. So I, you know, I just wound up betting baseball and they let me bet baseball and thank God. And they, they were really good to me. And I, I just kind of survived, you know, I never made no real big money, but, and then in 2007, I got cancer and then, uh, uh, but I've been living with it and I'm doing well with it. So, but you know, it hasn't been a, a you know, a merry-go-round, a picnic or anything the last 10 years, but I could, I'm sure done probably a lot better than a lot of people. And I cool. couldn't complain, you know, I've never missed a meal and I've lived a pretty good life. Well, a lot of it, thanks to those people in Costa Rica, but um, I, right now it's, it's tough right now. I'll be honest with you. No, I understand. So, so but Dickie, I want to talk a little bit more because, you know, for you, you know, when I was coming up in a business, you were always known as the baseball guy. Um, you're, you're, you had a very respected baseball line. Can you describe a little bit how you would come you know, to make a baseball line and what you did, what was, how, how would you come up with a number? Well, back in the day, you know, baseball was different. Um, first of all, the starting pitcher, you know, when I used to handicap a guy like Jim Palmer or Tom Seaver or Bob Gibson or Steve Carlton, any of those guys, you know, you, you handicapped baseball differently. The first thing you do of course, the first thing you do with baseball every day is read the box scores. And the next thing you do is handicap the starting pitchers. And the next thing you do is make sure there's no key injuries. And I, I, I used to handicap the starting pitchers. Now, Spanky, we got to talk about this because when I could handicap baseball with the best of them, there was no Don Best screen. There were no guys like you analyzing the line every day. There were no Billy Walters. There was no... It was a different era. And, yes, you know, I, 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 I did a pretty good job at it. I couldn't do it today. I could manage a line real well today. I know how to manage a line, but I couldn't make it on my own. There's too many factors that go into it. The game's changed too much. The starting pitcher is not worth near what he was worth 25 years ago or even 10 years ago. The starting pitcher, you know, is not worth what they were. The bullpens have become a big part of the game. Um, the players don't, you know, there's two records in baseball that will never be broke. You could bet your life on it. You could bet everything in the world in your life. And that's Cal Ripken's record of 2131 uh, and uh, Cy Young. Cy Young, I mean, those, those two records could never be broke in the history of the world ever. The game has changed. Yes, I can still make a line but not near as good as I could and not good enough to compete with these guys. My expertise is I can manage a line. In other words, if I make a game $1.60 and they've got it at $1.40, that doesn't mean I was right. Chances are nowadays they're righter than me, but I can put that line up and I can create action on both sides. That, that's really what I'm good at. Uh, I can create action on both sides. So let, let, let's describe that. Let's describe that because that's the art of bookmaking, essentially. How would you, you know, you know, I want to kind of get into the weeds a little bit. Let's just say you hang up a line minus 40, but you make it 60. Uh, how would you wind up creating action on both sides? 
and you'd obviously, if you make it 60, you kind of want to go in, um, you know, wanting to be able to, you know, have your players um, bet you uh, the dog. So, so explain to me what the process would be like. Well, let's see. Well, I'm, let's say they make a game a dollar sixty. Mm-hmm. Say it's a dollar sixty all over the Don Best. They got it fifty-eight. Somebody's got it fifty-seven. Maybe somebody's got it sixty-one. Well, if it was my money, I could do what I wanted. But if it was somebody else's money, they would tell me. You know, they would say, "Well, we we don't want an extension bigger than ten thousand or five thousand or twenty thousand, but we want to create action." Well, I put that game up about. Uh, 56, come back 48. I'd try to put it up somewhere where no matter who they bet on, they'd bet me. You remember how I used to do? No, it was unbelievable. And you you warranted action. You always – it's amazing because you would always – you would put up a price, Nikki, that, that would, would – you, you have to – like, you know, I would look everywhere. You'd always have the best number. And oftentimes, like you just said, you'd have the best number on both sides of the game. So you knew how to create action. And you weren't afraid – to, to write a bet, and I think that was – it's just such – and you were very good at it. Um, you know, you, you were one of the best I've ever seen, um, at least in my tenure, you know, for me doing this. Um, your talent is remarkable on how you were able to do so. Um, you know, what, why do you think that's missing today? Why do I think that's missing today? Well, the, the main reason it's missing uh, is because – the legal sports books and the casinos, they don't really care about having any action. They've got craps going for them, blackjack, roulette, slot machines. They don't need sports books. Their earn is much less in the sports book than it is out on the pit. So they're not really interested in writing a lot of bets. They run people off. Uh, they don't use bookmakers like me. They hire people to run those sports books, you know, with college degrees. And if they can just break even or win a little bit of money, they're happy with it. They they're not interested in a in a in having a real good sports book. I think that's the main reason. Uh, the other reason is, I guess, is that there have be there are so many people betting on sports now. Uh, a lot of these bookmakers bookmakers can get away with putting up a tough line. You know, I mean, they very few people deal a real ten cent baseball line anymore. Spanking very few. How many do you know? that book a real 10 cent baseball line. And what I mean by that is, you know, a dollar 10, 60, come back 50, two to one, come back 85. And how many people really book a 10 cent baseball line? Can you name them? I don't think you know, I don't, I don't know anybody that does it anymore. There may not be anybody that does it after a dollar 70. Yeah. It's always a graduated line. Yeah. I remember the true dime line was 95, come back 82. You don't see that anymore. And like you said, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, it's gone. Um, uh, it's, it's baseball. Um, what, you know, tell me what you think about this, but has baseball been, been, because there's so much data out there and there's so many computers and so many guys making these models and it's so sophisticated, um, that, uh, it's become, you know, bookmakers used to, you know, they used to hate hanging baseball. They used to just want to take – if they could get a choice, they'll take the whole baseball season off and only book football. Do you think that's the same way today? Well, I mean, they don't take the baseball off, but they discourage business by the line they, they put up there. A lot of them deal 20 cents. Hell, they put it up, you know, where you can't hardly bet. And uh, uh, they, they 
you know, they're not interested in gambling on baseball because they've got football going for them. And, uh, you know, if, they got, if they've got two-way business in football, they don't need baseball. So why, why gamble on baseball? Uh, you know, a man's got a better chance to win betting baseball than he does football. I think uh, it's a closer gamble. But they don't, they don't have to. It's, it's not that they won't. It's they don't have to. Uh, you can call it whatever you want, greed or management or whatever you want. But the bottom line is, is why gamble on the baseball when football's coming and they've got all these guys laying 11 to 10? Gotcha. Makes sense. And there's more business on football. That's the difference. I mean, you know, if you've got a guy like me calling you up and betting you baseball at 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, chances are they'd call me a break-even player. I mean, I might beat you, I might lose to you, but chances are you're not going to make a whole lot of money off of me. And why bother with it? You know, uh, so they try to spread the line out where you won't, you know, have as good a shot at winning. and Because they got football coming, Spanky. Yeah, no, I'm, absolutely. In fact, I can tell you right now, right here at the New Orleans Hotel in Las Vegas. Right now I'm in Las Vegas. I'm at the New Orleans Hotel. It's amazing the baseball line they've got up there. About a month ago, they used to have a decent line. You know, they had about a dollar forty, dollar thirty, and then they got to a dollar fifty-five. They'd go back to a dollar, you know, forty instead of forty-five. But now they have spread their line out where you can't even make them a bet. I mean, I've been down there every morning. I can't make them one bet, not one. And I used to give them a few little bets, uh, you know. When I was staying here and playing poker, I used to give them a bet or two, but can't even give them a bet now. They've got it 85-65. They've got it 2-1, to one, come back 70. They've got it 50, come back 35. I mean, they've spread their line out, and I know why they did it. They probably did it because football was here. And they got those people lined up betting parlays. And, uh, you know, I mean, they don't need somebody to walk up there and bet on a game and take a dollar eighty-five when maybe it should be a dollar eighty-five. They just don't need that. Absolutely. I think you're given now that you know you've done so much in the business and you could still offer so much to this industry um what do you think your, your best attributes are to be able to contribute to this industry um on, on the other side of the counter my best uh, attribute in the sports bookmaking business would be if someone had a sports book and they had traffic and they had some business, um, I could manage their sports book in a different way. I would increase business. Clientele would come. I would manage the line. I would put a line up. I would take a bet. I would create an atmosphere that everybody was welcome and you had a pretty good damn gamble in my joint. As an example, if I, if I was running a sports book in Las Vegas and I had a guy like you out there on the front row, and you were betting all those games instead of barring you or instead of cutting you down, I'd bring you a glass of champagne and a nice sandwich from the deli. So, <laughs> in other words, I would, I would run a sports book differently. I believe I would increase profits. For sure I would increase business, and I would increase traffic. Um, if I had a sports book in Las Vegas and I was managing the line, I can tell you that everybody would be in there. A lot of people would be in there. That would be the place they like to hang out the best. And they would probably be able to get, let's say, uh, Monday night football, the game is three. Let's say the game is five. 
it's five for your life, you know. I mean, it's a Monday night football game. I'd probably have it up four and a half or five and a half. Uh, you know, and I may have the five and a half, a dollar twelve, or I may have the four and a half, a dollar twelve, but I would give people a chance to come into my casino and my sports book and, and participate. That would be my biggest attribute. I couldn't make the line from scratch anymore. I'm not trying to pretend that I could because there's too many young people out there with sophisticated programs, computers, their knowledge is not as like mine, but their knowledge is today. And today's business is different. But once I came to the conclusion that this was a pretty good line, I could put it up and I could increase business and I could get a lot of bets, a lot of traffic, and everybody would want to hang around my sports book. I can just tell you that it would take somebody that would give me a little bit of rope. If they would give me a little bit of rope, you know, they couldn't come down there and say, well, Dickie, we, you know, we lost 3,800 on this game. How come we did that? You know, you're going to lose some games and you're going to win some games. But overall, that would be my biggest attribute. I know how to manage a line. And I know how to increase business. And, and that's a great thing, Dickie, that you just said. Because you know what? A lot of people are so vent up on this whole percentage. They, they want to increase the whole percentage. But you know what? It's, it, it's, if you increase business and you get higher volume, it's okay if you have a lower whole percentage because you're just making more money. Um, right. So it's, it's, it's uh, I, don't know, I think a lot of guys don't understand that. And they're just so, you know, vent up on that whole percentage. But um but it's okay to hold less as long as you're holding less and a lot more money. And I think somebody like you, Dickie, who's been in this business for so long, who's seen everything, done everything, and um, who's booked high, booked low, been everywhere, um, you honestly, I think, would be such a valuable, a valuable asset to any operation, whether it be a, a brick-and-mortar place or whether it be just an online place. Um, I think that your skills... Um, and I'm just speaking this out of experience because, listen, you know, I, you were you were my bookmaker for you know decade, a decade, over a decade, and um, and I I thought you were one of my best bookmakers. Uh, you were a must-have for baseball. Um, option sports has has always been you know the go-to for us. Uh, we would always um, love betting into you, and and you were always honorable and always great with us. And you're such a pleasure to deal with. You're such a good guy. Uh, you're such a good friend of mine. I've known you for so long. And I and I really, really uh, think that you would be such a valuable uh, addition to an industry that needs guys like you to show them how it's really done. Because a lot of these new up-and-comers, um, I think they get lost in, in what the art of bookmaking truly is. What's happened, Spanky, is the thought process has all changed. Um, I don't think there's only a few real bookmakers left. Bet Chris is one of them. I guess Pinnacle is. I don't. I don't. I'm not up on Pinnacle, but there there are not any real bookmakers left. Not really. Um, they they've all changed and they've all gone with the flow and they all listen to other people. I don't necessarily think that's the right way to go. And I believe that uh, I believe that there's another way to go. And I believe that way to go is just as good as the way they're going now. It just has to be done by someone who has the knowledge to do it. Absolutely. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't have said it better myself. Great point, Dickie. Dickie, before we close, the name of this podcast is called Be Better Betters. So I like to ask, you know, for my guests to maybe give advice to an up-and-coming guy that wants to make it in the game, 
a, you know, a, somebody that's starting off betting, or maybe that somebody's like, you know, look, thinking about going pro. What, given that you've been, you know, so successful and 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 have done so much in the business, what advice could you give to an up and comer on how they could become a better better? Uh, number one would be what I did wrong. Number one, you got to manage your money. I mismanaged my money. I went on tilt. So I, I would have to say, first of all, you got to manage your money. Second of all, you need to have knowledge. You need to be talking to knowledgeable people or you need to be reading knowledgeable items. Um, you need to have plenty of outs. You need to think about your risk against your gain. I, I you have and you have to work hard. You know, there's an old saying, and I can tell you this: the harder I work, the luckier I got, Spanky. And you have to work hard, manage your money. And nowadays, with all this communication and all this uh, accessibility, and all these sharp guys that are looking at these lines and women. You've got to stay on top of it and listen to what they have to say also. In other words, just because I think that I might be able to bet baseball doesn't mean that I won't listen to somebody that's sharp also, and I'll listen to anybody. You know, but I believe that you need to, to always listen to someone else and do what your gut tells you, manage your money, have plenty of outs, and always try to have the best number going for you if you can. But the bottom line is the harder you work, the luckier you get. Man, what unbelievable. Dickie, such wisdom. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it, my friend. It's such a pleasure to have you. And um, I look forward to getting together soon and grabbing dinner, my friend. I'd love to do that. I'll buy you a glass of red wine. You're the best, Dickie. Thank you so much, brother. All right. Thank you, Spanky. Dickie Carson is one of my favorite guys in the business. He's always a pleasure to hang around. He's really good on a barbecue, too. We never got into that, but he knows how to make a mean steak. He's a grill master. Um, great guy, um, family man, just a good all-around person. And um, anybody listening that's looking to try to get some talent on their team from an old-timer that knows that's been around, that knows uh, his thing... Um, I definitely would uh, would reach out. You could reach out to me or anybody else and um, think about bringing him on as a consultant or, um, or in some type of capacity because he's really seen and done a lot in this business and he definitely would be an asset. Thanks so much for the time. Until next time.